Specialty Story, session number 86. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we talk to physicians about their specialty, what led them to it, what they like about it, what they don't like about it, and so much more. Last week, we had a great discussion with Dr. Winchester about academic cardiology. This week, we have a great discussion with Dr. DeRose about academic cardiothoracic surgery. We start the conversation by talking about what drew Dr. DeRose into cardiothoracic surgery. Yeah, so I mean, as I was going through medical school, you know, in short order, I realized that if you're going to decide what specialty you're going to go into, it's hard to just decide that you're going to go into cardiothoracic surgery. And I'm sure people have sort of found this sort of way to, to sort out what direction to go. But, but the first decision is always to make about whether you're interested in going into medicine or into surgery. And I realized that even though I liked the heart and heart surgery, that first I had to decide that. And honestly, you know, when I was a third year medical student, I actually, I liked almost everything. And at, at a time I thought I was going to go into interventional cardiology, but it was important for me to realize that that's a medical specialty. You still have to do three years of medicine and then three years of cardiology and then ultimately interventional cardiology. And I realized that I liked surgery more than medicine. So I, at that time, there was no pathway directly into cardiac surgery. It's not entirely true. There were two programs way back when, when I applied, where you could apply directly into cardiac surgery, although now, of course, it's much different. But I elected to go into general surgery. And then as I was going through my general surgery training, I realized that uh, there were a lot of areas of surgery that I liked, but you know, I still was very, very much interested in the heart. And after doing multiple different rotations and an extra year of research in cardiac surgery, I came to the most important realization when you're going to decide whether you want to be a cardiac surgeon, and that was that you cannot be happy doing anything else, and if you make that decision, then it's okay to apply. So it really wasn't until probably my third year in my residency that I really committed to cardiothoracic surgery. Our last guest had a similar advice a mentor told him, what are you going to be happy doing at three o'clock in the morning? And it sounds like for you, it was it's standing in the operating room over a chest and not a colon. Uh, somewhat. I mean, it, it can't just be that though, because look, I, I loved heart surgery. I love the heart. I love the idea of being able to do surgery and minimally invasive approaches to the heart. And actually now in heart surgery, we even do do things that are interventional cardiology, but it's more than just saying I, I like operating the heart instead of the colon or the liver. I mean, you have to really understand the whole process that goes into being a heart surgeon and say, I have to do that. I can't do anything else. Because, you know, what the prior person that you talked to said is true. There's big sacrifices. And if you think you might be happy doing something else, then you have to pursue that that area. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good cardiothoracic surgeon? Well, I mean... That's an interesting question. I could tell you what traits people have that draw them to cardiac surgery, but that doesn't always mean that makes you a good cardiothoracic surgeon. I think 
Number one, you have to be interested in sort of acute care. And most of cardiac surgery is care that's high intensity and but very focused in a temporal relation. So you're taking care of very, very severe and critical issues, but you're taking care of them in small periods of time. So you have to like being in the hospital. You have to like taking care of critically ill patients. And then, you know, you have to also like other things because cardiac surgery is not just a mechanical field. Like orthopedics is very much about finding something that's broken, fix it. In cardiac surgery, you really, really have to enjoy pathophysiology and kind of even a little bit of cardiology because there's a lot of care of the patients and decision making that goes on. And finally, you know, cardiac surgery, because it's such a hospital-based practice, there are other things that go into being a cardiac surgeon, really regardless of whether you work for an academic institution or private practice. And that includes enjoying teaching because even though you may not have, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a professor and I have a full fellowship and I teach fellows, there's constant education that's going on even if you don't have a fellowship and you're educating PAs and nurses and perfusionists and junior faculty. And then thirdly, research is, you know, sort of a, an intimate part of the field also. And again, this occurs even if you're not in an academic program because cardiac surgeons are frequently involved in clinical trials and clinical research, even if they're not academic per se. So I think if you like all those three, then it could be a good field for you. In terms of, you asked me about traits, that's a different issue. I mean, you really need a lot of mental and physical stamina to be a cardiac surgeon. You have to be pretty even keeled because things can, can get very up and very down and you have to be able to take different things as they come. So I think those traits are very important in terms of just um, a, per- a personality traits. What other specialties as you were going through your, your general surgery training, what other specialties were close behind cardiac well, surgery? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting that you get drawn to different specialties when you get to that point to general surgery based on the people that you interact with and the mentors that you see. So one of my closest mentors was a vascular surgeon. And, uh, you know, I really liked the way he not only focused on surgery in the operating room, but how he, he thought of himself as an overall physician, how he took care of patients, he followed his patients and how he operated. And, uh, I did consider vascular surgery for quite some time. At the end of the day, a vascular surgery at that point, when I, it was just about getting to the point where like the majority of vascular surgery would become endovascular. And even though I did like that, I wasn't ready to give up completely on doing open surgery. And so at the sort of the last, the last minute, I decided that probably wasn't for me. So you mentioned that with cardiothoracic surgery, there's a lot of high acuity with patients. What sorts of disease processes, what sorts of patients are you seeing on a day-to-day basis? Obviously the most common pathology that most cardiac surgeons, whether they're in private practice or in academics are going to see is coronary artery disease. But and the interesting thing about coronary artery disease today is that there's many ways to take care of that. There's regular conventional bypass surgery, there's stents, and then there's things that I do also like robotic surgery and minimally invasive surgery. And being able to see patients with coronary artery disease and making decisions about what would be best for them is really fun and interesting. Other than that, uh, the next most common thing that, that most people will see are problems with valves. So whether it be the aortic valve or the mitral valve, leaky valves, stenotic valves. 
And again, there's a situation where the patients can be offered any number of different options, and those can include open surgery. It can include minimally invasive surgery. And now for valvular disease, it also includes things called transcatheter uh, structural heart interventions. Those are ways to replace valves or fix valves done purely uh, percutaneously. And surgeons are, are typically involved doing that with interventional cardiologists. So now aside from that, you have other, other areas of specialty that uh, depending on where you are, you may get exposed to. Um, one is aortic disease. So that's aortic aneurysms, aortic dissections. These are, aortic dissections especially, are, you know, disease processes that usually occur in the middle of the night and in life-threatening uh, situations. And so that's a little bit more of a high-intensity type of, of pathology that you see. And then finally, there's heart failure. Heart failure is a more, can be a more intense area, but that includes things like heart transplantation and artificial hearts. And... Um, those patients are very, very sick and usually require a lot of care both before and after. And a lot of the field is centers around not just the surgery, but patient selections and, and management of patients after interventions. What percentage of, of patients do you think are coming to you already diagnosed versus ones that have a particular symptom and you need to figure out what's going on? So, good question. Almost Remember, cardiac surgeons are sort of a tertiary or quaternary referral. So presumably, they've seen the medical doctor, cardiologist, and now you're getting called. However, even though you get called with a specific diagnosis, that doesn't always mean that that diagnosis is completely worked up or correct. It also doesn't mean that the patient has been completely evaluated, try to figure out whether they're a potential candidate for different interventions. And I was just talking to one of my medical students the other day. I realized that, that the evaluation of cardiac surgical patients for the cardiac surgeon is much, much different than any other surgical specialty because we are expected to evaluate every part of the patient's body, their lungs, their kidneys, their liver, their brain, their risk for stroke, whereas that risk stratification typically occurs by a medical doctor before other surgery, and we do have medical doctors involved. The cardiac surgeon ultimately is most responsible for figuring out whether a patient has risk factors for surgery. And that requires knowing, you know, not everything, but a lot about multiple different organ systems. So even though they may carry a diagnosis, sometimes a diagnosis is not complete. And appreciating the subtleties of every patient is what makes you successful or not successful. And that's also what makes it so fun. You're not a technician. You're not getting a phone call. There's a valve. You need to fix it. If you do that, then you won't be successful. Because at the end of the day, that patient that you get called about that patient's life is only in your hands at that point. And anything that goes wrong or goes well is your responsibility. As it was once famously said, trust but verify. Correct. And that's, <laughs> that actually, there's another saying, which we won't get into, but there is a similar saying in heart surgery. So <laughs> That's probably uh, not rated for this podcast. Well, some may be, some may not. <laughs> but I think in general, you know, it, it talks about the courage of the non-combatants. So yeah. at the end of the day, you know, you are the bottom line and you yep. can't expect other people to make those evaluations. 100%. What does a typical day or week look like for you? So I, I'm an academic heart surgeon, so I do research. I run a residency program and I have a very busy clinical practice. I do about 300 cases a year. So a typical day will be that I get in early, uh, probably by about seven o'clock. I'll typically have to uh, either uh, work on any number of academic things that have been on my plate that I try to do before 
going to the OR. But even before I get to that, I usually make rounds with the whole team, which includes the fellows and other attendings. And we go and see all the patients in the intensive care unit on the floor before we go to the operating room. The operating room usually starts about 730. I may have anywhere from one to three operations going on simultaneously. So uh, that'll involve uh, being in the OR most of the day, but also being available uh, to respond to other issues, questions, and concerns in between operations. When I get out of the operating room, then I get on my computer, and I usually field the 100 emails that I've gotten since I've been in the OR, but some of that's because of my administrative position. And at the end of the day, we'll usually round up the fellows, the PAs, and go and see the patients either that we just operated on or patients that are that are sort of having issues throughout the day. Finally, uh, before we go home, we have to see any patients that we've gotten called about for consultation, and uh, we'll assess them to see if they need any further workup and when they might get surgery. At the end of the day, after the clinical stuff is done frequently, I'll be on conference calls for clinical research trials that I'm involved in. That usually happens a couple times a week. And then if you're in a position of leadership, sometimes you also have at least once or twice a week uh, administrative type dinner that you have to go to, whether it's for planning or recruitment or what have you. So it's usually pretty full day, but it's really, really enjoyable. Do you have to take a lot of call? So call is uh, something that every surgeon needs to take uh, probably for the rest of his life. And even though I'm the chief, I still take call. So call for us is a little bit unusual uh, because we cover a lot of different things at night. We're covering just regular bread and butter heart surgery, but we also cover heart transplantation, lung transplantation, aortic dissection, and something called ECMO. So I have a schedule so that I have uh, different people, different specialties covering different areas. But in general, if you took our whole faculty, you typically take about six to eight calls a month, and that includes one weekend. In heart surgery, when we take call, it involves making rounds on the patients in the, in the ICU and the floor every day on the weekend, and then covering any emergencies that occur at night. Now, you know, cardiac surgical emergencies can include any number of things, but when they do occur and you have to go to the OR, it's, you know, the operations take kind of a long time. So if you're on call and you have an operation to do, you're going to be in the operating room five, six hours. Do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital and clinical duties? So all of that, people ask me that all the time. And so I've been in practice now for 17 years. I'm married to a physician as well, uh, who's an internist. And I have two children now that are grown, 21 and uh, 18. And I don't care what specialty you're in. This all depends on how you manage and plan your life and your day. So just as an example... I coached uh, my son's soccer team and baseball team from the time he was in third grade to the time he was in eighth grade. And when he got to high school, he played varsity lacrosse. I went to every single lacrosse game, whether it was home or away. Wow. Now, how did I do that? Well, it takes a lot of planning. You know, maybe you just do one case the day that you're going to have to get to baseball practice by five o'clock. And then maybe you need to go back in the hospital at 8 o'clock to manage things that um, need to be taken care of for the following day. But it can always be done. And, uh, you know, I'm so happy that I did do it. I also never missed a single play show or anything else. And I coached my daughter's soccer team as well. So 
it's possible, but it's not easy. Yeah. And be just being intentional and setting your schedule and setting those yeah. expectations with your coworkers and with administration. A hundred percent. So, I mean, you know, you have a certain amount of work that has to be taken care of and you need to be able to take care of that work in any time period that you can. So, I mean, it doesn't, everything doesn't have to be done between, you know, two o'clock and five o'clock on a Thursday afternoon, but it has mm -hmm. to get done. And then, mm -hmm. you know, also I, I'm lucky enough that I've worked in a big group of people uh, who I've known for a long, long time, and uh, we all are very, very supportive of each other's uh, family lives. So that's been really, really helpful. What does the training path look like to become a cardiothoracic surgeon? Presently, there are two training paths. We'll first talk about the traditional training path that obviously requires uh, four years of medical school and then application into a general surgery residency. General surgery residency is typically five years, although back when most cardiac surgeons of today are trained, they would all spend an additional year of research in cardiac surgery because the application process was incredibly, incredibly competitive. A lot of the applicants now who are going through the traditional pathway, do, most do not do extra research. By the time you get to your fourth year, then you have to apply to either a two or three year fellowship. And that's in cardiothoracic surgery. So now you've done four years of, of medical school, five years of residency, and then two or three years of fellowship. And then I encourage most people, even if they've done that traditional path, to spend an additional year thereafter focusing on a super fellowship in an area of a sort of higher intensity focus. So even if, if you think you want to do adult cardiac surgery, for example, doing an extra year in heart transplantation, if that's what you're interested. Or if you think you want to do thoracic surgery, maybe an extra year in minimally invasive thoracic surgery, just as an example. In cardiac surgical fellowship, you have to train in two years to three years in three areas, adult cardiac surgery, general thoracic surgery, that includes lung esophageal surgery, and pediatric heart surgery. It's an awful lot to learn in a short period of time. That's why an additional year is usually helpful. So that comes out to be five, about eight years of training on the traditional pathway. In about 2012, we realized that we were getting less and less applicants for cardiac surgery, and it had to do for any number of reasons. I think one of it had to do with the fact that it takes a lot of sacrifice to be a heart surgeon, and uh, a lot of people were, were less inclined to, to, to make those sacrifices and felt that, yeah, there are other things that I could be happy doing. And then two, you know, I think it also had to do with reimbursement. You know, it's not like you make any more money being a heart surgeon than you do being a breast surgeon. And um, again, people didn't really feel like there was the financial remuneration. So the number of applicants we were getting through that traditional pathway was small. So this is what prompted the institution of an application process directly from medical school. Because there's a lot more medical students that might be interested in heart surgery than general surgery residents. It's a much larger pool. And over the last, I guess, seven years, there have been uh, 31 spots that have been developed in what's called an I-6 program. So you apply directly out of medical school and you're being matched into cardiac surgery. Now, you still do about three years of the traditional general surgery training, but then the final three years are in cardiac surgery and also includes weeks or months in, in specialties that are important for cardiac surgery, like interventional cardiology, echocardiography, perfusion. It cuts about two years off the training length, although many of these programs also have you do an additional year research. And many people, if they, they finish an I-6 program, 
will also take an additional year of super fellowship training. So, but there's, there's two avenues. Now that I six application process is much more competitive mm. because you have a much larger group of people looking at it and there's a much, not much, but there's a smaller number of spots. What makes a student competitive for one of those I six spots? That's a very good question. So there's only, there's about two applicants for every one spot for an I six spot. So as you can imagine, and this was exactly the reason that this fellowship was designed was to get super, super, uh, candidates that if they had gone to general surgery may have lost their interest in cardiac surgery. So most of the, the, the candidates for an I six program have, you know, very good grades. They typically have at least one or two publications already and have done some research in medical school. So it's a different profile. Now, now the interesting thing about it is that you don't necessarily need as high uh, qualifications coming from a general surgery program. Now, there are still some excellent traditional training, ship, uh, training fellowship programs, and there are some I-6 programs that aren't that good. So, you know, a medical student should really, really think about that moving forward. It's okay to apply to an I-6 program, but just because it's an I-6, you don't want to go into it. There's some I-6 programs, many of them I don't think are better than some the top 10 traditional fellowship training programs. So if you don't think that you're that competitive for an I-6 program, it doesn't mean you can't be a heart surgeon by a long shot. In fact, you can go into a traditional pathway, five years of residency, take a year of research or not, and still be very, very competitive for the other 40 traditional fellowship spots. Now, the thing that's so fascinating is that of the people that don't match in the I-6 program and go on to do general surgery, only 5% of them, after they, while they're in general surgery, decide that they're going to go into cardiac surgery. So, you know, what does that mean? I don't know. Maybe it means that in medical school, you really don't know completely what it means to be a heart surgeon, but 95% of the people apply to I-6 that don't get in, lose their interest in cardiac surgery after they do a general surgery residency. So, you know, maybe doing a general surgery residency is very helpful for really, really making concrete in your mind that, hey, you know what? I have to do heart surgery. I can't do anything else. That's interesting. Similar kind of stats for Going into medical school, thinking about one specialty, only 25% of those students actually do that specialty. Yeah, I actually, it's fa- I, those stats I'm giving you right now are fascinating. They're from an article in the Annals of Surgery from uh, last month, and I actually have the, the article sitting, and I just have the, I just so happen to have the, the journal sitting in front of me right now, not because I was getting prepared for this, <laughs> but it just so happens to be on my desk, and I thought it was really, really fascinating. You mentioned the super fellowships for further subspecialty training, you mentioned a couple of them. Are, are those all of them or are there other ones that fellows can then go on and do as well? No. So it all depends on what you're interested in. So say you go into a traditional, an I-6 program or a cardiothoracic fellowship to your fellowship and you say, you know what? I've done three, three months of congenital heart surgery. I really like it. Well, you can't come out and be a, a pediatric heart surgeon. You got to spend an extra year doing congenital heart surgery. That's one. If you're a thoracic surgeon, that's a non-cardiac thoracic surgeon, there are super fellowships in any number of, of uh, specialty areas for that. So it could be one in surgical oncology, an extra year. It could be an extra year in minimally invasive esophagectomy. It could be an extra year in, in lung failure, like lung transplantation. So there are any number of areas where you can get additional training in adult cardiac surgery, the major ones would either be just, there are just in another year to broaden your experience in adult heart surgery at another 
a place, but the, the most common ones are going to be in heart failure, so transplant LVAD, minimally invasive heart surgery, and mitral valve repair surgery. Those would be the three most common ones. For the osteopathic student listening to this, what sort of obstacles or challenges will they have to overcome if they wanted to become a cardiothoracic surgeon? So an osteopathic uh, resident, osteopathic medical student has to go into a general surgery residency training program. Now, it can be a, a osteopathic training program, but it must be approved by the ACGME. So you must be in an ACGME training program, whether it's osteopathic or a regular MD training program if you do general surgery. However, if you do do that, there really are no obstacles. If you're a a good candidate with the same criteria uh, that I had mentioned, especially in a traditional pathway, you can absolutely become a cardiac surgeon. In my training program, we have uh, several DOs over the years. It's not uncommon at all, and they've many of them have been outstanding. You mentioned going the traditional pathway. Is the I-6 pathway not open to them? No. Okay. What do you wish primary care providers knew about what you're doing day in and day out as a cardiothoracic surgeon to help you better do your job and to help them with their patients? Well, that's an interesting question for me since my wife and my father are both internists. Uh, so I'm very in tune to the life of an internist and internal medicine. I think the, the one thing that would help us is that, is that primary care has changed a lot over the years. You know, when my dad, in my dad's time, so every patient in the hospital, so every patient in the office managed all the patients in the hospital himself and knew the patients very well after heart surgery. That's not the case anymore. Internal medicine has been very, primary care has been very stratified to inpatient, outpatient, and people don't really have their own individual patients. So we really do, because heart surgery is so much of a evaluation process that includes the entire patient, we really, really do need help in evaluating our patients for their end organ dysfunction. And you know, what, what's happened is that a lot of it's become fractionated. So you're like, oh, the patient might have some lung disease, better call the pulmonologist. Oh, sounds like the patient had a prior TIA, better call the neurologist. And that's not always so helpful because each specialty will focus on their specialty area. What you need is someone like the heart surgeon, except one that's smarter, like an internist, who's evaluating the whole patient and all of their medical problems to assess whether an intervention is going to make them either live longer or feel better. And that's the decision at the end of the day. So I think that's that would be the, the thing that I have the most uh, frustration with and the area that I think can improve on the most. But a lot of it has to do with the way healthcare is being delivered today. What other specialties do you work the closest with? Well, obviously, cardiology we're very closely with. So, you know, every area that – so I have a bunch of guys in my group and girls in my group, and each one of them might direct a program. So any program that you direct – you're almost always directing that program with a, a medical or cardiology person that specializes in that area on the medical side. So whether it's transplant LVAD, you're working incredibly closely with the heart failure cardiologist. If you do structural heart interventions, you're seeing the interventional cardiologist more than you see your own partners, et cetera. So we work very, very closely with them. And then it's important to have really good specialists in GI and pulmonary and renal to help you manage your patients post-op. Are there any special opportunities outside of clinical medicine for cardiothoracic surgeon? Well, I think I'm going to answer that a little bit 
a little bit differently. Cardiothoracic surgeons are a totally different breed, and <laughs> they really, from the beginning of your training, you're taught that it's not just about doing surgery. It's about all these other things we talked about, and then it's also about kind of being a leader and uh, learning how to speak and learning how to talk publicly and then learning how to expand your horizons. So most cardiac surgeons, this is how fascinating this is, aspire at some point to do other things. And you see that all the time, right? I mean, you see that all the time in, in the public sphere. So there have been plenty of cardiothoracic surgeons that have gone into politics, ultimately. There have been other cardiac surgeons that you may or may not know that are in, the, that are in entertainment and the media. Other cardiac surgeons aspire to go into administration or to lead a department. So I think the opportunities for cardiothoracic surgeon outside of medicine are immense. And anything is possible, but a lot of it has to do with the training. And the thing we didn't talk about the training, which I think I should reinforce a little bit, is that it's hard. I mean, things have changed slightly. We have obviously we have hour restrictions, but you know when I trained in cardiac surgery and general surgery, I was on on every third night for six years, and in cardiac surgery, I was on every other night for two or three years. And then when you get into practice, you're on. Even though you may not formally be on call, your phone is on twenty four seven. So it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a rite of passage that's important, but helps you, you not just to learn how to do the things we talked about, but to aspire to do other things. So I think the training process is part and parcel of all of it, and part and parcel of making you think about not just being a technician. What percentage of those practicing are? female versus male. Do you know that those stats? Uh, I don't know the absolute stat, but I'll tell you this. So I'm just preparing my residency talk where you have our interviews for our fellowship coming up in a couple of weeks. And over since I've been here at Montefiore over the last 13 years, half of our fellows have been women and half have been men. So, you know, how many, in, how many in, in practice today are women and how many are men is difficult for me to answer without looking it up. But those divisions seem not to be present any, anymore as people are going into the fellowship. Okay. I looked over the applications, our applications for this year, 40% women, 60% men. So, I mean, it doesn't seem to be a situation that is, is as polarized as maybe it was 30 years ago. Good. What do you know now? that you wish you knew before going into cardiothoracic surgery? Well, I mean, there's nothing I know now that would deter me from doing what I've done. But I think this is probably true with cardiac surgery as well as with just medicine in general. And that is that when we go through medical school and then our training, we don't realize, and nor are we ever taught, exactly when we get out and practice how we exist in relation to the real world. We only know how we exist within the confines of our training programs. And what do I mean by that? Well, there's a lot of things that you need to learn sort of by mistake to figure out how to function better the next time. And that is in two areas, most specifically. Number one, it's in the medical legal area. We get very little training in medical legal issues when we're in medical school. And you know, uh, there was a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine about four years ago showing all the specialties. And if you're a cardiothoracic surgeon, you have a 100% chance of being sued uh, if you've been in practice for 10 years. So it's going to happen. 
And not being in tune to what that means, you know, we as medical doctors, we sort of think about a lawsuit as like it's a, a morbidity and mortality conference. It has absolutely nothing to do with that. And it also frequently has absolutely nothing to do with right or wrong. It's another area of specialty that you have to learn, you have to be good at. And that means, you know, learning how to give a, an appropriate uh, deposition, learning how to appropriately document what you do in the chart to protect yourself. So, you know, it's really important and something that I don't think we teach well. The other is on the business end. You know, medicine's changed and not, not having uh, an idea about how the business of medicine works puts you at a disadvantage when you're trying to negotiate your first contract or realizing what's important to the hospital versus what's important to you from a financial standpoint. So I think all those things are things that you just learn as you're moving along. Finally, you know, in cardiac surgery, even though we do get exposure to outpatient medicine, it's only by experience that you really start figuring out all the interpersonal dynamics that occur when you see a patient in the office, you see a patient on the floor for heart surgery. And, you know, they're not things that you could necessarily assume immediately. Like understanding what the interplay is between a patient, family members, and what you're going to talk to them about. Understanding what the reactions of patients are when you're talking about life and death. You know, there's a lot of classic ways that people respond to it. And without being taught about that, you don't realize what the things are you need to address until you've made mistakes with that, you know, multiple times over. So there's a lot to learn that we don't teach. And uh, I wish we were better at that. What do you like the most about being a cardiac surgeon? You know, I love the fact that it's something new and different every day. I also love the fact that it's it's a dynamic process. You know, you have to do a good operation for someone to do well, but there may be many, many other things that go on that, that you need to be very, very intuitive about and very careful about in terms of managing those patients after surgery. And then I also love the other parts of it. I love the educational part. I love the research. You know, initially, you really draw, most people are drawn to heart surgery because it's, it's exciting and it's life and death. But after you do it for a while, it's not about the excitement. A lot of that becomes sort of, you know, surgery actually becomes the easy part. It really does becomes very routine. And you're just responding to things as you've been taught. But the different interplays of what each patient and each pathology brings are, are just fascinating. And then, you know, I still do love being the person there for a patient in their most trying times, whether that means saving their life or sometimes helping them die. What do you like the least? The thing I like the least about heart surgery is the litigious portion of it. You know, most of the time people do very well, but there are complications and it's up to us to manage those complications. But there's a lot of lawsuits in cardiac surgery and that there's nothing that's more painful than to have to go through that. Even though 95% of all lawsuits get dropped and of the 5% that ever go to trial, only 5% of those are ever settled, it's just really a part of life that, as a doctor, we usually just don't want any contact with. Do you see any major changes coming to the field? And, and I think specifically for, for this conversation, I'll, I think I want it framed around potentially the, 
the turf wars that may be going on in a hospital with interventional cardiology and cardiothoracic surgeon and, and surgery and, and maybe another field coming in to take some of your patients. Yeah. I mean, so it's a little, I have a little bit different perspective on it because obviously I do those things. I do those interventional things, but I think first we need to take a broader perspective on it, like a 20, 30 year perspective. And I've been seeing and hearing since I'm a medical student about how stents were going to take away coronary artery bypass grafting. Now, of course, that's still the most common operation done in America. And if anything, cabbages are going up in volume. But what it does uh, reinforce is the fact that cardiac surgeons are always intimately involved with new technology. So, you know, whether it be transcatheter valve interventions or developments in, in coronary stent placement, we're, we're always engaged in that, whether it be on the research end or on the clinical end. And as new technology comes, all it does is give us new opportunities to be involved in new things. So, you know, it's a simple way to think about it that, oh, this is something that a cardiologist might be able to do. So that's going to uh, take away from the field of cardiac surgery. And it's absolutely not the case at all. If anything, the cardiac surgery volume is increasing as we as surgeons get more involved in this new technology. So I don't think that's anything to worry about at all. The area that of excitement that and development that is happening is on a structural hard end. And I do think that that will continue to be a space that cardiac surgeons will be involved in. And then in the heart failure end, uh, the different artificial hearts and left ventricular assist devices that are coming out are becoming less and less invasive. And there are more and more patients that can be helped with that. So I think the future for cardiac surgery is incredibly bright. From a, a job perspective, there actually was a, a lack of cardiac surgeons going into the field about five, 10 years ago. A lot of the older surgeons that have been retiring in the last five, 10 years has left a huge opening for cardiac surgical uh, positions. So getting a job in cardiac surgery is much easier now than it's ever been. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a cardiothoracic surgeon? You know, it's a hard, hard question <laughs> to answer, but of course I would. I mean, you know, I love what I do. I still love coming to work every day. There is no other job that is as exciting as what we do. I do think that you have to be the right personality to take on the challenges that it does bring, though, because when you're in heart surgery, people will die. You'll save a lot of lives, but people will die, and you have to be able to deal with that. But I love it, and I obviously would never do anything else. Any last words of wisdom for the medical student or maybe even the general surgery resident thinking about cardiothoracic surgery? Yeah, I think that anytime you're going to talk to anyone, whether you're a, a, and this happened to me too, whether you're a college student thinking about going into medicine and you talk to a doctor, they're going to say, don't do it. And they're thinking about the challenges that we go through every day, but they're not thinking about, you know, this is a profession and, you know, Medicine in general, my dad told me this years ago, he's an 81-year-old internist now, is the noblest of all professions. There's nothing more noble that you can do with your life. And it is a profession. It is something that you have for yourself forever. It is not a job. And in cardiac surgery, it's the same kind of discussion except on steroids. <laughs> so if you tell anyone you're going to be a cardiac surgeon, they're going to say, you're crazy. Why would you ever want to do that? Why would you want to sacrifice the time, the effort, part of your life to do those kinds of things. You're not going to make as much money. Things are going to be hard. There are lawsuits. And the reality is that you're doing it for something else. You're not going into this field to, 
make more money or less money. You're going into it because you love it. And if you do it that way, there is nothing more gratifying. There is not a single profession that's more gratifying than what we do. So I would not deter anyone who's interested in going into the field. And I want them to sort of listen to what people tell them on the negative, but not to take it to heart completely. All right. There you have it. Again, that was Dr. Joseph DeRose, academic cardiothoracic surgery, talking about his career, 17-year career now, as a cardiothoracic surgeon, talking about what he likes about it, what he doesn't like about it, the training path to get there, and so much more. It was a great conversation with tons of great advice. You can tell Dr. DeRose is very interested in helping future cardiothoracic surgeons on their journey and every medical student and and resident on their journey to figure out what really they want to do. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned for more great episodes of Specialty Stories coming out soon. Have a great week. We'll see you next time. 